0: Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Some of you are still waking up, I see. I don't sleep very well these days, so I've been up for a long time. But I'm so glad you all made it here this morning. I want to start this morning with a question. Have you ever felt unseen? Perhaps you felt overlooked in your family as you were growing up. Or maybe you've felt unappreciated in a job, or you've been passed over for promotions. Or perhaps when you're with your friends, you wonder if anyone truly gets you. Or maybe you feel like when people look at you, all they see is a label. I've worked as an adjunct professor for over a decade, and that means that I have only semester-long contracts to teach particular classes. And I never know from semester to semester how many classes I'll be offered. And although full-time professors and administrators have always been kind to me, I receive very little institutional support and often don't really feel like I'm a part of the schools that I teach at. And within the broader academic world, being labeled as an adjunct can make you feel like you're not a real professor. So I've often felt unseen in my work. And we're in a series right now called In the Beginning where we're looking at the book of Genesis, which is foundational for how we understand who we are. And today we're gonna look at the story of a character who was unseen by everyone around her, but who had a powerful encounter with God. The story of Hagar. We're gonna pick up the story in Genesis 16. Now, God has made a covenant with Abram, who's later renamed Abraham, and promised to give him descendants, land, and blessing. But Abram's wife, Sarai, later called Sarah, has long been barren. By this point, it's been 10 long years since God first promised to give Abram a son, And Sarai is in her mid-seventies. So she hatches a plan to help God out. It says, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. Now, in the ancient world, using a slave as a surrogate was an accepted practice for dealing with barrenness. So Sarai is drawing on the wisdom of her day to resolve the problem. But polygyny, that is taking more than one woman as a wife or concubine, was not God's ideal. It never works out well in the biblical narratives, but always produces jealousy and conflict. Also, there's no indication that Abram and Sarai asked God what they should do about Sarai's barrenness. If they had, God would undoubtedly have told them to wait and see what he would do. Sarai's plan works, but as we see, it leads to conflict. It says, When Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, And now that she knows that she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Now, it could be easy to blame Hagar here, and perhaps even see her as deserving of Sarah's retaliation. But when it says that Hagar began to despise her mistress, that's offering an interpretation of a somewhat ambiguous Hebrew phrase that could be translated literally as, her mistress was light in her eyes. So that could simply mean that Hagar saw getting pregnant by Abram as changing her status so that she and Sarai were on more equal footing. In the ancient world, bearing children brought women significant honor, and barrenness was a source of deep shame. So maybe Hagar just stopped showing Sarai the deference that Sarai thought was her due. But even if Hagar did despise Sarai, we should remember that Sarai treated her as an object, a womb that could be given to Abram without anyone seeking her consent. And not only that, but as Hagar feels the gentle kicks of her baby, her own flesh and blood, she knows that Sarai plans to take this child as her own. Sarai gets more than she bargained for, which is often the case when we try to help God out. And note that although Sarai acknowledges that she came up with the plan, she blames Abram for Hagar's behavior and Abram refuses to get involved. He tells Sarai to do with her whatever she thinks best. Literally, do to her whatever is good in your eyes. When people do what's good in their eyes rather than what's good in God's eyes, it leads to all sorts of harm. Abram does nothing here to protect his unborn child or the child's mother. And Sarai follows in the footsteps of Adam and Eve, choosing what is good and evil for herself, rather than submitting to God's wisdom. So she mistreats Hagar, leading Hagar to flee. The story continues. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. The angel of the Lord is a representation of God himself, and it's interesting that it says that he found her. Now, I don't think that God didn't know where Hagar was and had to search for her, but that language of finding suggests that he was pursuing her. The passage continues. She was at a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Now, although Abram and Sarai had labeled Hagar, always calling her Sarai's slave, the angel of the Lord calls her by name. And notice that he asks Hagar two questions, where have you come from and where are you going? But she only answers the first question. I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. I think it's likely that she doesn't know where she's going. She's alongside the road to Shur, which was south of the Promised Land, so that could suggest that she was heading back in the direction of her homeland, Egypt. But perhaps she's realized that there's no longer anything for her there. She's alone in the wilderness with no hope of a future. The angel of the Lord addresses her aimless wandering by telling her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. We'll come back to the question of why God would call Hagar to return to a situation that he knew was oppressive. But for now, I want to note that God gives Hagar a promise that resembles his promise to Abram. God had told Abram in the previous chapter, look toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Even though Hagar's child will not be the promised covenant heir, even though she conceives because of Abram and Sarai's attempt to help God out, God promises that Hagar, too, will have descendants that can't be counted. In fact, God's appearance and promise to Hagar leads, leads Susan Piggott to call this Egyptian slave woman the mother patriarch. The story continues. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son. You shall call, or You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery." He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Now, this description of Hagar's son may sound pretty negative at first, but the image of a wild donkey may suggest Ishmael's freedom as a nomad in contrast to Hagar's enslavement. And the statement, he will live in hostility toward all his brothers, could actually be translated as, he will live in the presence of all his brothers. God's words do suggest that Ishmael will experience conflict, but that may simply reflect his foreknowledge of what would happen, rather than his desire for Ishmael's life, and after all, Israel would experience considerable conflict too. And the name God gives the child means Yahweh hears. As Hagar faces the difficulties of living in Abram and Sarah's household, Ishmael's name will be a constant reminder that God hears her suffering. In response to God's promises, it says, Hagar gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me for she said I have now seen the one who sees me strikingly this egyptian slave woman is the only person in the bible said to name god and she calls him the god who sees abram and sarah sarai never truly see hagar but god does He sees everything she endures in the household of Abram and Sarai. And he sees her lost and wandering in the wilderness. And he sees not just an Egyptian slave woman, but Hagar, a woman he created in his image. He knitted her together in her mother's womb with intention and care, and he deeply loves her. So Hagar returns to Abram and Sarai and gives birth to Ishmael. We pick up the story again around 17 years later. By this point, Abram and Sarai have been renamed Abraham and Sarah, and Sarah has also had a son, the child of promise, whose name is Isaac. When Isaac is a few years old, it says that he grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. Now it's not quite clear what Ishmael was doing that led Sarah to react so strongly. The word that's translated as mocking is actually the Hebrew verb to laugh. Tsachak uh, is the Hebrew word. And it's the word that Isaac's name comes from. So the passage may be suggesting that Ishmael was Isaacing. In other words, that he was enjoying pleasures or privileges that Sarah thought should belong only to Isaac. It continues the matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. I want to pause here for a moment. Now, note that it doesn't say that Abraham was distressed about Hagar. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. So God's words might be a gentle reminder that this concerns Hagar too. But God continues, Listen to whatever Sarah tells you because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation." Why did God tell Abraham to listen to Sarah and send Hagar away? Well, I think what Sarah intended as an exile from their household and from the promised land, God intended as an exodus deliverance. Let me say that one more time. What Sarah intended as an exile, God intended as an exodus. In many ways, Hagar's story parallels Israel's. Just as the Israelites would later be enslaved by the Egyptians, so the Egyptian Hagar was enslaved by Abraham and Sarah. In fact, when God tells Hagar, go back to your mistress and submit to her in chapter 16, that word submit comes from a form of the Hebrew word anah, which could also be translated as something like allow yourself to be mistreated. And that same word is used in the previous chapter when God tells Abram, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. I said that we'd come back to the question of why God told Hagar to return to a situation that he knew was oppressive. I don't have a clear answer. (laughs) But I do think it's important that God didn't ask anything of Hagar that he didn't also ask of Israel. God didn't cause Hagar's suffering, just as he didn't cause the suffering of the Israelites in Egypt. In both cases, it was the result of sinful human choices by the powerful to mistreat and oppress the vulnerable. But, for some reason, God allowed suffering to be part of both of their stories. There are a couple other considerations I think we should keep in mind. First, infant and maternal mortality rates were very high in the ancient world. So when Hagar is out in the wilderness alone and pregnant, both she and her unborn child are quite vulnerable. Abraham's household provides much better resources as she gives birth to her baby and cares for him during those risky first few years. Also, because Ishmael is raised in Abraham's household, he receives the mark of the covenant when he's circumcised at age 13. Ishmael is both an insider and an outsider to the covenant. His descendants won't receive the promised land, but God still blesses him and promises to make him into a great nation. God cares for Ishmael, too. You see, I think that when God sends Hagar back to that difficult situation, he intends for her to have an exodus deliverance. It's just not yet the right time. God hears Hagar's cries when she flees from Sarah and he memorializes his attentive concern in the name of her son, Ishmael. Yahweh hears. And when the time is right, he acts to deliver her by telling Abraham to send her and her son away. God hears her cries and rescues her from slavery just as he later hears the cries of his people Israel suffering in slavery in Egypt and delivers them. In Exodus 3, 7, God says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. And so he calls Moses to go to Egypt and bring the Israelites out from their slavery. Now, at first, as Hagar wanders in the wilderness, it doesn't seem like deliverance. When she and her son run out of water, she thinks they're doomed to die. We can imagine her deep despair as she kisses Ishmael one last time and staggers away because she can't bear to watch him die. As she collapses on the ground, her body is racked with sobs, even if she's too parched to produce any tears. But then she hears a familiar voice. What's the matter, Hagar? Only God called her by name. Could it be that the God who sees had seen her once again? I wonder what she thought when she heard that question. What's the matter? I mean, it seems pretty obvious what's the matter. She and her son are dying of thirst. But after God explains that he's heard Ishmael's cries and reaffirms his promise to make Ishmael into a great nation, it says, Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. The wilderness seems dangerous and inhospitable to life but it becomes a place of God's provision for Hagar. And this, too, parallels Israel's story. When the Israelites wander in the wilderness after God brings them out of Egypt, they, too, lack water and think they'll die of thirst. And God provides for them by bringing water out of a rock. But it's interesting that that's not what happens here. Instead, it says that God opened Hagar's eyes to see a well of water that was there all along. He'd already provided it for her. She just didn't have eyes to see his provision. So God's question, what's the matter, Hagar, may be an invitation for her to reassess her situation in light of God's promises. God had declared that he would make Ishmael into a great nation. And if Hagar had been looking, she would have seen how God was working to fulfill that promise by giving them the life-sustaining water they needed. So what should we do with this story? How does it speak to us today? Well, for those of us who relate more to Abraham and Sarah than to Hagar, For those of us who have been seen and recognized and who are experiencing a fair amount of power and privilege, the story of Hagar may invite us to consider whether there are people around us that we haven't seen. Have we used others as means to our own ends? Or have we merely overlooked or labeled people? When I was in elementary school, there was a kid in my class named Jonathan who was often made fun of. I don't think I participated in that, but I also don't remember ever standing up for him. And it wasn't until years later that I realized I never truly saw him. I never considered what his experience must have been, or wondered what was going on inside of him. So I think of him often to remind me to try to be more aware of people around me whom I may have overlooked. This story may also lead us to ask whether we've failed in our responsibility toward anyone God has called us to provide for. One detail in Genesis 21 that strikes me is that even though Abraham is initially hesitant to send Ishmael away, he does very little to prepare Hagar and Ishmael for life in the wilderness. By this point, Abraham has a massive household filled with slaves and animals, silver and gold. He could have given Hagar and Ishmael an entourage of attendants to ease their journey and provide protection. He could have offered a train of donkeys laden with provisions. Instead, he sends them away with such a meager amount of food and water that Hagar can carry the parcel on her shoulder. God tells Abraham to send them away, but he doesn't say anything about how he should send them away. And Abraham's lack of provision is what puts Hagar in such a desperate situation. So perhaps we should consider whether there's anyone God has put into our care that we've left to fend for themselves. But others of us may be in a situation where we relate more to Hagar. Phyllis Tribble says, As a symbol of the oppressed, Hagar becomes many things to many people. Most especially, all sorts of rejected women find their stories in her. She is the faithful maid exploited, the black woman used by the male and abused by the female of the ruling class, the surrogate mother, the resident alien without legal recourse, the other woman, the runaway youth, the religious fleeing from affliction, the pregnant young woman alone, the expelled wife, the divorced mother with child, the shopping bag lady carrying bread and water, the homeless woman, the indigent relying upon handouts from the power structures, the welfare mother, and the self-effacing female whose own identity shrinks in service to others. If you feel like you've been on the margins, the story of Hagar is for you. If you've been overlooked or labeled, the story of Hagar is for you. If you've been wandering in the wilderness just trying to survive, the story of Hagar is for you. Now, please hear me clearly. I don't think this story is saying that anyone should remain in a situation of abuse. If you're experiencing abuse, there are resources that can help you get into a safer situation. And please reach out to a pastor here if you'd like help in finding those resources. But the Bible also never promises that we can escape suffering. We live in a broken world, and sometimes we suffer when we haven't done anything to deserve it. And we may wonder if anyone sees our pain. So I'd like to take some time here as we close to respond to this story. I'd like to invite you all to close your eyes and wherever this story lands with you, I invite you to hold out your hands in a posture of receiving. If you relate to Abraham and Sarah, Take a moment to ask God if there's someone you've overlooked that God is inviting you to see anew, to see through his eyes. And if you resonate with Hagar, I encourage you to offer your pain to God. I think God may want to tell you this morning that he sees you. He calls you by name and he knows all the difficulty you've faced. Perhaps you might imagine him looking at you. As you see him in your mind's eye, how does he look as he gazes at you? Maybe you could also ask God if there are sources of provision that He's given you that you haven't yet recognized. Let's just take some time to sit in this place. Come, Holy Spirit.